Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 286. Thursday, March the 16th, 2023, and thank you for joining us, listening to our podcast, vetgurus.com, the place to go. Send us an email and we'll chat about one of our emails this week, Mark, vetgurus at gmail.com. It is that simple. How are you, Mark? I'm great, Brendan. I'm really, really well and excited. I'm happy that you're still alive um, after (laughs) your recent foray into deciding to dance with a few saltwater crocodiles in the wild. You'll have to briefly tell our listeners a little bit about that if you are allowed to comment it on is, it. it. Some aspects of it are commercial incompetence and some culturally sensitive, but essentially I've gone out with some researchers and uh, and identified some crocodile nests, some crocodilus porosus, the saltwater crocodile nests, and, um, and harvested some eggs. Uh, um, under all under permit, all legal, um, and but mate, it um, doesn't matter how under permit and under legal, it still feels like a very cowboy exercise, and um, and gently encouraging that female three point five meter crocodile to uh, abandon go away for a little bit yes. for a while um, is some fun, Brandon. Well, there's some. Very high-profile, um, tragic cases, aren't there, here in Australia, especially regarding a particular sort of um, wildlife uh, cinematographer who um, who got into trouble with the helicopter sort of dropping in and grabbing eggs and that um, recently. So I'm glad you're all in one piece, Mark, and um, you enjoyed your scrambled eggs. So <laughs> I think... I think there'll be more about that in a future date when you're allowed to chat about it, but yeah. um, not jealous much at all. And thanks to our main sponsors, Mark. We haven't mentioned that. Shout out for them for a while. Specialised Animal Nutrition, Jen and the Gang, Microchips Australia, Doug and his gang, and also Andrew, Chemical Essentials, and his lovely staff. And Aren't they, aren't they not only a... Um a boon to our podcast, um, making it much, much easier for us to achieve the opportunity to do this. But they're just such, they provide an array of resources for exotic veterinarians in Australia, veterinarians who treat unusual pets. Um, the amount of stuff and help that the, um, that Doug, um, all the teams that they help uh, our veterinarians with. It's just amazing. Such a community, such a sharing, caring community. Yep. And links to all of those sponsors on our website, vetgurus.com. Go there, click on them, spend a bit of time there and buy their products because they're good stuff. Excellent, excellent, excellent quality and well worth grabbing. Some critical care, some F10 cleaner and a couple of microchips. What more do you want, Mark? So, ah, yeah. You could run a practice on that. <laughs> you could. Well, 
I think, well, we've got a, we have, we do have an email I've mentioned at the top, Mark, but just, just briefly, I'd, I'd like your comment on um, the um, schmozzle that goes on every year called the Oscars, Mark, um, <laughs> which recently occurred. And as we know, last year there was a bit of a, was a bit of slap in the face, wasn't it? Um, so there was nothing like that this year. Um, I was a bit disappointed, as, as all I could say, Mark, this year. Not, not that there wasn't a slap in the face, but I was disappointed with the win there, Mark, um, everything, everywhere, all at once, whatever it's called, um, scooped most of the prizes, um, including Best Picture. But I, I didn't think it was a great film. It was a entertaining film. It was good, but there were a couple of other films that I've, I've seen. I haven't seen them all on the list of the candidates for the best film, Mark. Um, that. Um, so I can't comment on the other ones, but there were at least a couple of the other ones that I thought were vastly superior films, Mark, and you may not have seen them. So just briefly, All Quiet on the Western Front, um, which was a remake of the very old 1950s or something, or 60s film, All Quiet on the Western Front, so um, based on a very famous book of sort of an anti-war film, World War One in the Trenches, Mark, um, and... Oh, I just love that film. It was fantastic. Um, it was very harrowing and had some pretty horrific statistics at the end of the film about what happened during World War One and how many 17, 18 million people died and during the trench warfare and they gained, you know, 300 metres or something um, in, in the main area that they were chatting about. But Beautiful cinema, cinematography, um, extremely well acted. Um, not a lot of dialogue, but just, oh, just I love the way it was filmed, Mark. So I, I love that one. I would have preferred that one to win best film. And the other one that I liked was with one of our local um, actors, Mark um, Tar, with with Kate Blanchett. Um, have you heard of that one? I've heard of it, but um, I'm, I'm you are I'm out of my depth and not having seen any of the movies. I'm only going on the reviews I've seen. Yeah, I, I loved, you know, again, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it's about basically a a, um, a, a concert um, conductor. Um, that's her surname. Um, fictional, um, and she's a bit of a bully. And, um, yeah, it's just fantastically acted. Um, I'm surprised she didn't win the best actress um for that so that's it i'd recommend that film but yeah although i could say a lot of people find it very boring but i found it an excellent film mark so yeah just just wanted to make a a bit of a um bit of a little comment about that mark do you um, think um the oscars seem to have become rather a, less a celebration and more of a show on its own you, you know what i mean it, um... yeah and i think they just it's it's i'm a bit cynical of these sort of things that they tend no. to be a bit a bit um you know hollywood centric with with their votes on particular movies that it's politically correct to you know vote for x film this year yeah. etc so yeah so anyway enough enough film talk mark um do you want to read out we um there's one email that we received it last week or so that we should um should um Address. Do you want to well, I, I do. Uh, um, I want to have a quick talk about uh, our correspondence from Mark Owens, who's uh, one of the um, the veterinarians uh, at the University of Queensland, and um, and he writes to us to say that he's currently enjoying the Rabbit Dentistry podcast episodes, um, and um, and I do think it's a 
good thing for people? Like, is it, there's often a series of episodes that talk about problems now that we've accumulated such a number of podcasts that, um, that there are series that cover various topics. Um, but they do only cover it in, you know, the, only, the way that uh, podcasts can. Um, and uh, Mark asks if uh, he was wondering if there was any practical CPD options in Australia to learn how to perform some of these procedures. Um, and there were two big things that I wanted to mention, Brendan. The first one is that um, is that UPAV, the special interest group of um, the AVA that... Uh, that is the um, professional organisation for veterinarians with an interest in unusual and exotic pets, particularly things like rabbits in Australia, um, have their annual conference usually late in the year, this year in November in Sydney. And, um, and there are often practical classes associated with, uh, with those events and you should always be aware of those um, hands-on labs about the... Uh, the various conferences, yep. um, but also Brendan, I know that uh, you and um, uh, the the, uh, the Bobs would travel to particular universities and um, and deliver some parts of uh, the the uh, exotic course to the students directly. And and I know you uh, a number of times have um, have gone to like you're one of the presenters at the UPAV, but you also do um, do these things at other locations as well. So, I, geez, I would be saying, get in touch with us, Mark, and we'll send Brendan up, and he'll show you on site. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I'd be keen on doing that, Mark. And um, as as you alluded, we have certainly travelled around Australia and sometimes international to give presentations about exactly this topic, bark dental procedures in um, rabbits and other small mammals. So um, I'm, I'm more than happy to have that discussion with Mark. And um, there are some other organisations, I must admit, that do provide it, some professional C continuing education groups within Australia here, Mark, that might also um, have other people on the books as well. But, yes, um, it would be something I'd be interested in. So give, give me an, another yell back, Mark Owens, and we will chat to you about that. Um, otherwise, we can point you to some of the other places as well um, about practical CPD options in Australia. Um, the other option, obviously, is um, you or your colleagues to travel um, somewhere to to have the um, have the practical training elsewhere um, rather than in situ at the university. Yeah. So good to hear from you. And we always enjoy emails, don't we, Mark? So vetgurus at gmail.com. And with that, I think we're going to jump into, we've got a couple of really interesting news <laughs> stories this week, Mark. Um, I'll take the first one and it's, um, I'd love your opinion on this one, Mark. It's, it's the old chestnut of being self-aware and the old, um, you know, measure supposedly of self-awareness. You know, having a holding a mirror up to an animal and and doing something like putting a text mark or a, or a dot on the face of the animal and then seeing if they look themselves in the mirror and try to rub off that um, mark as one of the classic sort of um, tests they've designed to supposedly determine whether or not um, animals are self-aware. And this article. Uh, 
fishsciencenews.org. Fish can recognise themselves in photos, Mark, further evidence that they may be self-aware. So some fish can recognise their own faces in photos and mirrors, Mark. So what they did with this is they managed to, I think they did the same thing, didn't they? They, um, a new study, um, cleaner fish that passed the mirror test were then able to distinguish their own faces from those of other cleaner fish in still photographs, it, which suggested that fish identify themselves the same way humans are thought to by forming a mental image of one's own face. So, um, yeah, um, my, my comment with this sort of thing is, you know, maybe maybe it's not quite a very accurate um, test, this, Mark. So what they did with this um, particular research study, Mark, they injected brown dye just beneath the scales on the fish's throats, marking, mm. making a mark that resembled the parasites these fish eat off the skin of the larger fish, fish in the wild. And when the marked fish saw themselves in a mirror, they began striking at their throats on rocks or sand on the bottom of the tank, apparently trying to scrape off the marks, um, you know, assuming they thought they were little parasites there. So 10 fish that passed the mirror test were then shown a photo of their own face and a photo of an unfamiliar cleaner fish face. And all of the fish, Mark, all 10 of them acted aggressively to the unfamiliar photo as if it was a stranger, but not aggressive towards their own face. i tell you what, I act pretty damn aggressively to my own yeah. face, Mark, when I see myself <laughs> first thing in the morning. Don't know about you. Um, what's your thoughts on this, Mark? Geez, it's complicated, isn't it? And nuanced. And yep. they uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what to think, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, I want to, that my, my, the emotional part of my brain wants to believe the, the more complex nature of, um, you know, animals and, and, and I tend to anthropomorphize overly. Um, I've got my anthropomorphic um, guard up all the time because I do have a tendency to apply human characteristics to animals. Um, yeah, I don't, and and I don't know. I don't know whether like is is it directly a concept of self that they're reacting to, or is it just um, pattern uh, parts of it? Yeah, part, yeah, not not the entire concept that I'm an individual fish, uh, but just that a series of um, uh, you know. Um, things the, the irritation of the injection um and then um the visualization a bunch of other factors may be at play here yeah i just don't think you can clearly say they your know spider sense is tingling as you would oh, say Mark. exactly <laughs> <laughs> what have you got for us um my ones uh well i misread the title when i first got this article um <laughs> Not surprising. (laughs) So the title of the article is Why Male Giraffes Drink Potential Mates Pee. And I just had this vision of a bunch of giraffes outside a pub about to go in and, you know, potential mates at the bar. And But it's not, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with their um, their Australian, you know, the Australian term mates is a completely... Um, unique interpretation. Um, this is uh, what the female giraffes have to offer male giraffes, and that is, well, as this art- article asserts, uh, a Valentine's Day gift of urine. Um, and uh, 
and the whole point of the article is to highlight um, the anatomic connections between the mouth and the vomeronasal organ in giraffes, which allow them to assess the urine. So they'll uh, sometimes lap at the urine. They'll absorb some of the the um, the the urine with the associated hormones. Then they'll perform the Flemin manoeuvre. Most of our uh, listeners will be aware of the way horses cool the their lips. The old Flemin manoeuvre, Mark. <laughs> and uh, that procedure places uh, higher concentrations of the urine in uh, the vicinity of the openings to the tubes, to the vomeronasal organ, allowing them to sense the concentration of the urine and then in, make a, an a, assessment of when it would be ideal to mate with that female giraffe. Um, so that whole stepwise process that seems very, you know, odd to us as uh, humans that you would um, contemplate tasting the urine and then rolling your lips back and uh, um, making an assessment about the suitability of mating um, is exactly what giraffes and a number of other herbivorous animals um, do to know when they can put the effort in and, um, and yeah, uh, uh, produce a baby giraffe. Yep. The old Fleming manoeuvre, Mark, I think when I used to watch a lot of professional wrestling, Mark, it was a, a um, manoeuvre that was used quite frequently, but to <laughs> devastating effect. Uh, so there you go. Okay, let's jump into our main topic, Mark, because we've already put most of our listeners to sleep, I think. Um, foreign bodies in reptiles. Now, we covered GI problems and or GI obstructions in birds, Mark, back in episode 174, which was January 2021, which is a a few years away um, ago. Um, So this time we're going to cover reptiles, aren't we? So, um, and you wanted to, you suggested this topic, Mark, so you can get stuck into it. Why are we talking about obstructions in reptiles? Well, the thing that triggered me to think about it, Brendan, there was a couple of things, you know, serendipity that happened at once. And the first one is that, um, well, my pre-existing position was that this is um, largely a problem of captivity that um, I'm sure we've all seen captive bearded dragons on YouTube wandering around the, the lounge room and and having a crack at anything that uh, wiggles past. And sometimes they'll end up swallowing, you know, a piece of Lego or something like that as they test their environment, and that can end up being a foreign body. And uh, and so it um, was with a little bit of surprise as uh, I was up here at the tip of the Cape and watching uh, and learning about the behaviour of some of the wild reptiles that um, I came across some stories in talking to some of the local people about um about snakes that um that seem to ingest uh, some unusual things and um and the ways that um that we can extricate those animals so the one in particular was um uh was a, a scrub python um which uh big uh, the um, a particular person up here was um having a go at uh, fishing they'd caught a uh, a few fish they'd had to remove the the um the guts um so they had the the uh the fish to eat and um they had the the guts in a bucket 
which a um, scrub python uh, proceeded to um, attempt to swallow. And, uh, um, and, and obviously that circumstance, like the bearded dragon one, um, is one where normal cues, the olfactory and visual cues that an animal would use to maybe even the infrared um, the pythons mm. having infrared uh, um, sensitivity, um, maybe even some of the uh, sound cues trigger the sense in the animal's brain that this is food. So the bit of Lego that's green that gets kicked across the lounge room, the bearded dragon pounces on it. Um, the snake gets the smell of the of the fish guts and. Um, and that trigger, and maybe it's warm, and that triggers a series of uh, signals that, um, yep, now's the time to have a crack and and see if I can eat this unusual but uh, recognised food source. Um, so my first point was that we need to, as uh, people who care for reptiles, be aware of these circumstances. Be aware that um, that uh, they are at times going to have a crack at eating something that um, that they may not routinely have a go at um, because some of those signals are, are uh, fired off and we can help manage the animals better in a captive circumstance if we're aware of those things and we uh, attempt to limit the exposure to them. Excellent point, Marks. And I think your comment about bearded dragons there is certainly applicable in that they're... They're cheeky little things. They're great, great pets, and they're they're very inquisitive. And if they see something that suddenly moves, um, they think there's some food. Um, so, yeah, something like I think your example was a piece of Lego flicked across the floor or, or of the um, lounge room when they have the bearded dragon out. Then it might run after that and, and grab it. So. Uh, that, my analogies are a little bit like the ferrets of the world, Mark. They're, <laughs> they're very inquisitive and they're prone to ingesting things as they shouldn't there. So it's amazing the variety of things that can be stuck in the guts, um, as you mentioned, as you as you put it, Mark, um, in, in some of these reptiles there. And um, some of them, and, and I'd like your comment on this, Mark, some of them managed to poop out um, some of these foreign bodies mark and it can be hard to determine which ones are going to pass through or not um, sometimes it's a bit of a wait and see um, for a short or a, or a slightly longer period of time to see if it passes through but I suppose the first step is uh, trying to identify what that object or is obstructing the intestinal tract mark so how do we approach that well, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there in that the, the, often the presentation of these animals that have ingested a foreign body um, is just that they're anorexic. They go off their food and they're often um, still pretty much normal in every other way. Um, and just as we would do with other species, with our dogs and cats, we um, perform a good thorough physical exam. And my experience is that um, very often uh, with reptiles, abdominal palpation, and particularly ga uh, palpation of the gastrointestinal tract, is easier um, than I find in um, many many dogs or cats. Um, it is um, often the level of suspicion that it's a foreign body rises precipitously uh, just on physical examination alone, even if the history is absent. Um, 
But of course, the history and a physical examination, if there is someone who comes in and says, oh, they ate the Lego as it rolled over the floor um, and you can feel it, I mean, you're there. But obviously the next step, if you only have part of the picture, is to take a, a radiograph. And I do find that a lot of the the um, the material, the foreign bodies that are ingested, are often radio-opaque, uh, are not radio-opaque, they're... Um, uh, radiolucent and so contrast medium being prepared to do a contrast study with these guys is often uh, uh, critical yep and the good thing about those little those lizards especially you can often so can have a high suspicion of, of we have got something that's stuck there um, just by palpating them whereas sometimes with the snakes because we have various other sort of lumps and bumps that can be be shown to exhibit in in a clinical exam in a snake that may not be a foreign body there. So we need to start to go to our diagnostics. And as you say, radiographs are always an easy, simple first one to go with. Um, Plus or minus the use of contrast medium there, Mark. Um, What other sort of modalities have we got? What what else do we think about doing with these animals that have suspect blockages there? Um, And what I'm getting on there is other other things like um, ultrasound um, is is something that we can certainly do. Other forms of diagnostic imaging are definitely useful and they're often more useful the more experienced you are with them, Brendan. We've had this discussion before about ultrasound that um, that I'm a klutz with it. I don't do it often enough, and um, and I probably am not uh, um, uh, prof- as proficient as I'd like to be as a consequence. And so I think it's always a good thing to force yourself to get the probe out and whack it on just about everything you can because, well, if my experience is anything to go by, the first 30 years or so you'll uh, be learning, and then once you get out to the fourth decade, you... Um, you start to be able to recognise these things. But, yes, any other diagnostic imaging, useful part of the of the workup. But, Brendan, I'd often say if, that, um, that I'd be thinking about um, a combined therapeutic and a combined diagnostic and therapeutic procedure. Um, if we are going to go to surgery, then I leap in and, and uh, have a look. The gastrointestinal t- tract is relatively simple, um, and and you um, you often get your diagnosis at the point at which you open the stomach. I do like your point. It's really important to mention this that more, many many times I have been I've given clients a doom and gloom prognosis. Um, we've supported an animal. The clients haven't been able to make a decision, um, and you would be surprised some of the things that uh, bearded dragons, in particular, but all reptiles, are able to pass. Um, the opening to the vent in a bearded dragon may only be seven or eight millimeters across, but it seems to stretch to allow some very large things to pass. And um, and you're exactly right good supportive care and making sure the animal's uh, functionally normal and not in pain and and a bit of time. And that introduces another diagnostic technique and that's shoving an endoscope Ah. from the other end, Mark. So going from the front end as well and getting into that esophagus and then the stomach and if you're lucky a little bit further in some of these reptiles and 
Um, we we spoke about recently a um, endoscop endoscopically assisted retrieval of a marble, didn't we? Um, yeah, I think um, in a bit of dragon. So yes, but Brandon, having had- yeah. Well, no, you go on because I was going to move on to the next little um, part of this podcast. Well, I was going to ask, have you had any success multiple times in these circumstances where we know a reptile has a gastrointestinal foreign body? We've Because the esophagus dilates so much for the... Um, the uh, you know snakes swallow gigantic things. So um, I'm often tempted to... Uh, stick the scope in and grab something. I'm often very optimistic about my chances of doing it, but um, I can't tell you that um, the outcomes match my n- uh, natural optimism. Yes, with snakes, I totally agree with that, Mark. Whereas, say, with the lizards like the beardies, um, I have managed to retrieve things from from stomach region um, and adjacent areas, Mark, from an endoscope. But certainly with the snakes, it's a bit of a... A challenge, yeah. It's it's often something that might struggle to to remove, or it's something that you cannot remove um, physically. Um, but yeah. yeah, popping the endoscope down certainly, and you know, non invasive, fairly risk free procedure. And having said all of that, Mark, I think we cut to the chase by cutting them, don't we? Don't <laughs> we? With the right. vast like majority s- of these, yeah. like so many things in veterinary science, and a chance to cut is a chance to cure. And don't be afraid of, of doing that, going to that um, process, even if you're not super experienced with, with surgery for reptiles. Um, because as you mentioned, Mark, it's a fairly simple gastrointestinal tract with most of them. And we won't talk about doing the obstructions in turtles here because that can be a bit more of a challenge. Bit next um, level. Yes. Um, it's satisfied, isn't it, those ones where oh, you do manage yeah. to find a, a foreign body and we don't have any further damage to the gastrointestinal tract where we end up doing resections or, or worse euthanasia with them that um yeah it's one of those you know really really satisfying surgeries when you realize that yes you've not only removed that foreign body you've you've um, saved this reptile one of the other things uh just in closing i was going to mention brendan was the um was uh the attempts because snakes have such a um well uh, um in even just in helping some off the road up here um the stress of handling will often lead those animals to um to regurgitate a recent prey item yes um and and so i do think it's worthwhile to consider um uh, the induction of Emesis. I've had no success with the um, uh, with the, and I haven't even looked at the reasons why. There will be a reason, I bet, that drugs like apomorphine and whatnot do not um, elicit a prompt regurge from our um, reptiles. It'll there'll be some biochemical reason, but I have had some success, um, uh, probably more than I'd hoped for, with um, with the um, the use of some. Unpalatable chemicals not uh, applied to the mucosa. So, a number of times we've had a snake that um, I remember one distinctly, Brendan. I had a snake that um, had the the owner was a little bit afraid and used a glove to hold the mouse Mm. um, that uh, that it was uh, fed on a twice weekly basis. And um, 
And of course, the snake miscued didn't bite the mouse and got the glove. And because it smelled like a mouse, proceeded to eat it till it got stuck. Um, and the reverse pointing teeth and uh, the large part of the glove stuck in the um, uh, proximal esophagus meant the snake couldn't get it out. Um, couldn't seem to get it out until we just applied a little bit of hand sanitizer to the mucosa at the commissure of the mouth. We used a syringe to draw it up and just squirt it into the commissure, only a couple of tenths of a mil. Um, and that stuff, I haven't got it in my mouth, but it must taste filthy because uh, um, the alcohol-based hand sanitizer promptly made the snake regurgitate the glove in its entirety, walking back off the the part that was uh, in the esophagus. Very interesting case report, Mark. Very interesting. Um, and it makes me think about one other comment that I uh, I don't do enough or we don't do enough in our clinic, the mention about regurgitation of, of food items, especially with snakes, um, up to you know two or three to four days after being fed. If a snake has been booked in for a routine health check, it should be on the list of things to ask the client, have you fed your snake within the last few days? And if they have, don't book that snake in for a health check until the next week or so. Um, Great. Otherwise, you might have a regurgitation on the way in the car, which the client may not be happy, or even worse, over the vet, Mark, <laughs> in the consult <laughs> So, yes, great, great um, prompt there, Mark, for me um, in, um, in that um, mentioning that. And it's something I should, we should add to our protocols again um, if they're not already there. I think with that, Mark, we've, we've covered, gee, that was a, um, a very quick summary rundown of foreign bodies, gastrointestinal foreign bodies in, in our reptiles minus our chelonians. And we might cover chelonians again at a further stage. And I think with that... We will get out of here and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.